This is Abroad in Education, a podcast where I unpack the international suitcase by focusing on EdPats and their experiences within education. I'm your host, Tiffany Lachelle. All around the world, so fulfilling, so fulfilling. Yeah, stamps on box Hey everybody, this episode is going to be a little different from the previous episodes because I've always seen myself as a person that didn't push my ideas on other people. Instead, I like to think about particular things and then invite people to share their different perspectives. And I think there's something to be learned through people's perceptions because most of the time our individual thinking is connected to our lived experiences, the ways that we've been conditioned to think about things. And I guess this is why I like academia because it it really gives you permission to engage with like a 360 degree perspective of one thing. So you're able to cite folks who you agree with and then you cite other people that you disagree with and then you add your own perspective. But it gives you that neutrality to be able to say, okay, I am familiar with this one subject and I have something to say about it. So in this episode, I want to invite you all to just chime in as I grapple through this theory that I'm learning about. I wanna use it for my research, but at the same time, I realize that I haven't used my platform to create a stance, to even talk about, you know, a lot of the things that we've been experiencing as far as George Floyd, white supremacy, race and racism, COVID-19. I really haven't taken a chance to put my perspective out there. So in order to do this, I've decided that I want to use this theory called emotional transnationalism to kind of grapple with some of the things that are happening around us. So this theory actually came out of sociology, but it's been applied to different fields. So in this episode, first, I want to provide a background to the theory. And then second, I'll share my understanding of it. And then third, I'll apply it for our further understanding. Before I talk about emotional transnationalism, I just want to give a little bit of basis of what transnationalism is. So it's a theory that describes having multiple ties and interactions which link people or institutions across borders and nation states. People use transnationalism to look at social politics, political politics, economic processes, all these different things. But it's basically looking at one thing and then shifting from this concept of the individual perspective, which is based on nation, state, and borders, to a more global perspective, which is based in creating new ideas through these international relations. So in 1997, Diane L. Wolf, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Davis, she created this theory called emotional transnationalism through this article, Family Secrets, Transnational Struggles Among Children of Filipino Immigrants. In this article, she's talking about second generation Filipino youth in California and how they're situated between the spaces of their grandparents, their parents, and then their own lived experience in the U.S. And at the time, Filipinos in the U.S. were labeled as this 
model minority, and they were seen as the immigrant population that were known for assimilating into corporate spaces, excelling in education, and basically just having few concerns with connecting with American society. She, she basically conducted a survey which was looking at teen risk behavior in U.S. cities. It was given by the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. And what she found through this survey is that there was an extremely high number of Filipino female high school students who had reported that one, they either considered attempting suicide and two, that they had actually attempted suicide during the year preceding the survey. So Dr. Wolf, she's thinking, well, how does this model minority reputation connect with these attempts and considered attempts of suicide. So in this study, she actually interviewed 22 university students about their stories as second-generation Filipinos in the U.S. And these notions about like home, having multiple locations of home. So the Philippines is home, right? Their, their parents as first-gen in America is home. And then their definitions of themselves is home. So kind of thinking through how they think, how they make decisions, how they're changing and modifying their practices, which can be seen as culture. It's just all of these conflicting layers of how to be. So emotional transnationalism basically situates these students between generations. You're trying to live up to the ideals of your grandparents, you're living up to the ideals of your parents, and then you're also trying to create your own understanding and lived experience. So in her study, using this theory of emotional transnationalism exposed the contradictory messages, the pushes and pulls, the pressures from their families, and all of these different things, especially when it came to education. So for example, she was saying that some of the students excelled in education. They did very well in high school. And in their minds, excelling in high school meant that you had opportunities. You could you know, pursue different jobs and have all of these different accesses that maybe your parents didn't have. But what they faced were barriers set up from their parents who told them, oh, we need to play it safe. I know that you are interested in this. I know you have passion to do this, but we need to play it safe. So not having people that they could speak with as an outlet, not having people that they can talk to as far as unpacking these contradictions. She labeled this barrier as emotional transnationalism for Filipino second generation students who were in this new space, which was the U.S., and them not having access to many of the things that they imagined. So emotionally, they responded to these limitations. I actually read about this theory in Dr. Bianca Williams' book, The Pursuit of Happiness, Black Women, Diasporic Dreams, and the Politics of Emotional Transnationalism. So in this 2018 book, she talked about this notion of Black women who were a associated with a travel group called Girlfriends Tours International and their annual trips to Jamaica. So attempting to understand why these black women sought transnational experiences, she talked about how the national politics of race and gender and ageism, sexism, all of these different things were things that they had to deal with in America, but they used Jamaica as a site 
to escape it. So she, she's contradicting and making these notions of happiness and, you know, bliss and fulfillment and, you know, these different ways of feeling good. She contradicts these ideas by saying these women had to move across borders, national borders, to be able to access these emotions. So the ways that she talks about contact zones between African-Americans and Jamaicans, right? And it's completely different between African-American women and Jamaican men and African-American women and Jamaican women. But at the end of the day, it was like this notion about feeling free. And kind of bringing in pop culture, I'll say, she talks about how Stella got her groove back. You remember the movie, how Stella got her groove back? And I didn't realize that the movie actually inspired many African-American women to go to Jamaica, literally, to get their grooves back. (laughs) So in my mind, I'm thinking about this image of a balloon and how, as an African-American woman in the States, this balloon is deflated because of racism, ageism, sexism, And in order to inflate this balloon, you have to go to another place and you're inflating it with these feelings of joy and happiness and bliss through these encounters with, you know, a different space, different people. But the issue is this is travel, right? It's not living abroad. It's not migration. It's through travel. So it's almost like a cyclical event where these women are in the States going to Jamaica, in the States going to Jamaica, but it's showing how these emotions become transnational as these bodies cross borders. So I wanted to give this very surface And let me say that a surface understanding of this theory of emotional transnationalism. And of course, if you're interested, I will definitely provide the resources in the show notes. I think it it definitely does diligence to what I want to do with this theory in the episode. So given this background knowledge, I want to share how I'm thinking about emotional transnationalism. And I need to start this by saying this theory makes me think about James Baldwin right? And this notion of being an expatriate. There's a book called The Black Expatriates, A Study of African-American Negroes in Exile, which was written by Ernest Dunbar in 1968. He opens the book with this quote from James Baldwin, which was based on an interview when James Baldwin was in Istanbul. And James Baldwin said, the danger of being an expatriate is that you are very likely to find yourself living, in effect, nowhere. As time goes on, the expatriate finds that he has no real or relevant concerns and no grasp for reality. He's living, really, on the hazards and energies of other people. He has ceased to pay his way. In my case, I've got no choice but to shuttle back and forth between the new world and the old. I gain something from both places, after all. And possibly, I am simply far too proud, consciously, to step aside a danger. I use this quote as the basis of my understanding because although James Baldwin is basically viewed as one of the original black expatriates, he never saw himself as an expat. I mean, there's plenty of interviews out there where he really rebuttals against this notion of the expat because he instead suggests, I'm a transatlantic commuter. I'm commuting inside, outside of America. I'm only leaving because I have work to do, right? So he talks about this notion about, I'm only leaving the States because if I'm in America, 
there's nothing to compare America to. So it, it requires that I get outside of this space so that I can get a deeper understanding of what's happening in America. And don't forget that he's a writer. So he is outside of America writing books, writing plays, but he's still playing with these politics of racism, of genderism, of socialism, and then he's bringing that information back. So he's commuting over the Atlantic, which is why he calls himself a transatlantic commuter. And he's saying the danger of being an expatriate is that you don't belong to anything. You're just out here in the world. <laughs> so just thinking about these geographical locations and for him centering the Atlantic, I want to kind of challenge that notion and, and, and really think about this notion of a transnational commuter. I think it speaks more inclusively to the contemporary and transnational commuters like Marilene Shane who I want to take some time to think about. So on June 10th, 2020, Marilyn Shane wrote an article called The Black Expat, Living Abroad as Your Country Burns. Now Marilyn is a deputy vice principal and has spent six years working in the UAE. So in her article, she was very intentional about providing a thoughtful response toward the murder of George Floyd and in an attempt to share her insight about what it felt to be a black expatriate, a black American living abroad. At the time of political unrest in the US, she's, she's thinking about these ideas in this article. So she says, being an expat, unable to come home to the States due partly to COVID-19 and job obligations, it's even harder to watch from the sidelines, feeling torn between being thankful for the blessings of where you are and the fire inside to get engaged and fight firsthand. You watch as you see protests carried out on television that you know you would be part of if only you were there. So in this article, where I want to insert this notion of emotional transnationalism, I want to first point out the emotions where she's saying she's feeling torn between being thankful for the blessing of where you are, but then also the fire inside to get engaged in the fight and fight firsthand. So Marilene, who is located in the United Arab Emirates, she points out that her body is not physically located in the U.S., but she's also not isolated from the emotions that are being evoked from the US. So if we're thinking about race, racism, white supremacy, although it's heavily prevalent in the US, although her body is physically somewhere else, she still feels it, right? She's in a place where to, to even be part of a protest, you face heavy fines. So she's watching from the sidelines and thinking about, well, what are ways that I can actually get involved with this? So this is the notion of being between spaces, but being emotionally attached to both. Now, I can understand why people might look at her article and think, well, you're an expatriate. Why do you even care? You left us. <laughs> and it's one of those things where I have to continue to tell myself, especially for African-American teachers who leave the States, we're always posed with this question, you know, why are you leaving when we have so many people here who need you? We're part of a struggling educational system. Why would you leave knowing that we need you? But this term expatriate is loaded because it carries so many political connotations. I actually had a conversation with my grandpa about the term expatriate. And of course, he said to me, well, if you're going to use a word, you know, you better say what it means. <laughs> if you're asking me what I think about an expatriate, you need to tell me how you're thinking about it. And I agree. 
I agree. So as far as the term expatriate, it has been used for many things. And I think time and space and history really shows the ways that this term has been metamorphosed and transformed into different things. Like at a certain point, expatriate did have a lot to do with mobilizing, right? This is implementing passports. In order for you to pass certain spaces, you have to have a passport. And if you live in this space for a particular amount of time, then you are of this country and not of this country. It also makes me think about Roosevelt's speech. He was basically talking about welcoming immigrants into the United States, but at the same time saying, this is not a space for hyphenated identities, right? There's no hyphenated lives. So if you're coming to America, you are American. You cannot be Italian American. You cannot be French American. If you're coming into this country, you have to be an American. So you are expatriate of whatever country that you were in. But then as time goes on, of course, you know, you're looking at this term expatriate and it's a privileged novice term. You're looking at multinational businesses that are hiring most likely white men from particular countries who have traveling spouses who are living in a different country for a certain amount of time. So if you're an expatriate, it's a cute term to say that, you know, you're educated, you're able to mobilize, and you're working for a well-off economic business. But the issue with the term is expatriate really does have a lot to do with X which is what my grandfather said, who is in his 80s. He said, if you're ex anything, it means you've been fired. So if you're an ex employee, you've been let go. <laughs> and I thought it was so interesting because I said, well, grandpa, if, if you've been let go, you're an ex employee. But what if you quit? Like, what if you just say, I quit? I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And he said, but you never call an employee who quit an ex employee. Ex is for folks who were let go. So I think this conversation is definitely for a whole different episode. <laughs> and just the notions that the term expatriate, you know, what it tries to connotate, what it doesn't try to connotate, the historical of it. I think there's a lot of things that could be unpacked, repacked, and modified in just the term. But if we think about expatriate as being synonymous to James Baldwin's notion of being a transnational commuter, it does allow us to see how Marilyn's story is based in this notion of commuting between spaces. And similarly, how James Baldwin's transnational quest allowed him to have these feelings, right? But the feelings are even stronger because they're divided between two spaces. They're contradicted between two spaces. And I guess you know, for lack of a better term or a better better understanding, you're between the space of where you're from, cultural context, you're between the space of where you are, physical context, and then you're in this space of recreating yourself, being a part of both and whatever that looks like. So for Marilyn, the way that these emotions are showing up while she's in the UAE, she's talking about her feelings, about what's happening in the U.S., but She's between these feelings of saying, you know, my ties are connected to the U.S. because my family and my friends and my communities and my conditioning, like my legacy of who I am is in America. But then I'm in the UAE and I'm contradicted by these feelings of freedom and guilt that I'm not there, but I'm actually happy to be here, but I'm unhappy that I'm not there. So similar to products, education, materials, other things that can be described as transnational. 
emotions can transnationalize as well. And they usually transnationalize through people. So the third thing that I want to do in this episode is think about how emotional transnationalism can further our understanding about what's happening in the world. And I wanted to start it with Marilyn's article because I thought it was significant about how she talked about her individual experience with emotions and how she was emotionally affected, you know, regardless of these physical locations. But I guess the question that I need to pose is what happens when individuals who are emotionally affected come together collectively. And the best example that I have to portray how emotions mobilize is this case of George Floyd. The televised murder of George Floyd received a global response of riots and protests, which were really based in feelings, right? They were situated in rage and in anger and in solidarity. And it would be easy to say, well, police brutality in the U.S. is an issue that only affects U.S. citizens. But there was something familiar about this injustice that resulted in communities around the globe gathering and resisting in places that I'm just like, so what's their history, right? How does this connect to Belgium? (laughs) How does white supremacy connect to these spaces? But it wasn't even necessarily the history that was the connection. It was the emotions that was the connection. They were upset. And these emotions are a result of years of institutionalized racism, white supremacy, and how they've transnationalized into global spaces. What's interesting for me is that I am a doctoral student at the University of Minnesota, which is located in Minneapolis, which is the base of where George Floyd televised murder happened. It's interesting because I'm in this space of the UAE where public protests are completely illegal, but then I'm also watching how the world is responding to this. So I'm connected to this in so many different ways, but I guess to me, being abroad doesn't mean that you're away from it. It actually means that you have additional lenses to analyze it through. I mean, imagine privilege, right? Americans, we understand the notion of privilege as white privilege, but what does it mean to be privileged to look through eyes of an African-American in the UAE watching the televised murder of an innocent black man. You know, your family, your friends, your communities are showing up. The rest of the world is showing up, all while you're in a country that has instated social precautionary limitations that restrict your mobility, right? The borders are closed, the flights are not coming in, but you're safe and you have a guilt about being safe, but then you're also feeling free because you're not there but then the people that you're watching are in fear and they're in bondage. It's like all of these contradictory, but still it's all happening at the same time. So I'm saying this to say, I have a new imagination about people from countries such as Syria or Afghanistan or particular countries in Africa, because it's like an oxymoron. You are safe, but you're also in bondage. Right, you're in this notion of freedom, but you're also in this notion of fear. And in the individual, you're feeling both spaces, but there's some other feelings that are coming up because not everybody is feeling that. And this is why I say I'm grappling out loud because a lot of these things are still, like I'm I'm imagining this and I'm trying to think it through, but it's not quite coming together as clear and crisp because I'm still dealing with it. 
I mean, your body has mobilized, but you're still you're bonded, right? You're, the bond is everlasting regardless of where you go. I mean, even when you're feeling good in a different space, you're still emotionally attached to whatever it is that you affiliate yourself to or that you've conditioned within or that you're from, like you're never away from it. So thinking about it in this way, Dr. Bianca Williams in her book, The Pursuit of Happiness, where she's talking about African-American women who go to Jamaica, in the conclusion, she posed this question And she says, what does it mean if African-Americans are the only group that sees the African diaspora as a useful concept to understanding their lived experiences? And another way to understand this question is, what if African-Americans are the only ones who have to look at the experiences of others to understand their own? Which is why, I mean, I have to say, this this is the exact reason why I am not an advocate for African-Americans to leave the U.S., but I am an advocate for us to at least, at bare minimum, travel to other places so we can get a taste of what it feels like to be outside of oppression, to be outside of racism, to be outside of sexism and genderism and all of these different things that restrict our abilities to be and show up as who we are. And the funniest thing about it is, or maybe I shouldn't say funny, the most interesting thing about it is we'll see the same concepts, but just in different colors. We'll see the same concepts, but just with different nationalities. We'll see the exact same concepts that are wearing different clothes, but at least being outside of the States gives us this opportunity to not be the subject of the experience, but to truly be on the outside of it so that we can understand the things that we experience. So I'm going to leave that there. First, I want to thank you for listening as I grapple through this, because I know a lot of it is not concise and connected in the way that I want to use it. Because essentially, I want to use this theory to talk about African-American K-12 teachers who leave the U.S to come and teach abroad in K-12 schools. And for me, there is something significant about this emotional transnationalism because at the end of the day, we're not disconnected. If anything, our connection is even more potent and it allows us to see some of the things that we've been conditioned to believe as false narratives, as very westernized ideologies, as very... Um, how do you say it, ideas that have been inflicted with, with Western powers and, and look, I don't even have the words. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I'm going to leave it here. And this is an invitation. I would love to hear your response. I would love to hear how this connects to you. I would love to hear if this connects to you. I would love to hear how or what situations come to mind as you're thinking about this theory of emotional transnationalism. You know, what does it look like to be who you are in different spaces? And how does these emotions, as far as race, racism, origin, particular countries, like how does this even situate in your lived experience? So I'll leave it here. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to hearing from you. Abroad Education is created by Tiffany Lachelle Smith. Lady Justice, the song that you're listening to, was written and produced by Billionaire Dreams. 
You can get his Postcards album on SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you download your favorite podcast. Let's keep the conversation going and follow me on Instagram at abroad underscore IN underscore ED. And you can also access the website at abroadeneducation.com.